0: Hello and welcome back to Habit Helps, a podcast of Creekside Community Church in San Leandro, California, where we are talking about how habits build you and about how you can build better habits. I'm Jeff Bruce, one of the pastors here, and I'm joined by the bishop, the reverend, the pastor, the honorary doctor, senior pastor emeritus of Creekside, also my dad, John Bruce. Dad, how are you? I'm feeling very old all of a sudden. I just...
1: (laughs) I'm enjoying the spring, except for the pollen part.
0: Yeah. Well, those titles were meant to honor you, Dad. Thank you. Um, I, feel, so I feel honored. I hope you feel sufficiently honored as we begin this podcast.
1: As Jesus said, I have my reward in full now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, today we conclude our series on the habits of a missionary. Missionaries are not just professional Christians who raise financial support and travel to a distant land to tell people about Jesus. That is one kind of missionary, but according to the New Testament, every Christian is a missionary. In John 17, and again in John 20, Jesus says, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus sends us. Every Christian is sent by Jesus, commanded by him, and empowered by the Spirit to go into the world and make disciples. And if you are a Christian, that should impact the way you view every facet of your life, because mission is not just something you do in your spare time. No, a missionary is something you are. It's part of your identity as a follower of Jesus, which means you're always sent, whether you're at work or in your neighborhood or on vacation or with your family, you are always supposed to be functioning as an ambassador, as a representative of Jesus, the King. You should be thinking about yourself as a a delegate of a foreign kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and your job— Being sent by Jesus is to demonstrate the culture of that kingdom through what you do and also to declare the greatness of Jesus, your king, through what you say. So what does it look like practically to live like a missionary? How do you live out of that identity? Well, that's the question we've been trying to answer in this series. And as a springboard for our discussions, we're using Sam Chan's brand new book, which is entitled How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy, Personal (laughs) Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Now, Dad, we said this was going to be an eight-part series because the book is eight chapters, but I'd like to point out, to, to put some more honor on your honor plate, uh, you are an overachiever, and you told us to do chapters six and seven last time. So now it is a seven-part series, and this will be the seventh and final part, which really is the biblical number for a series. It is. It's just like the book of Revelation. It's all built on sevens. It's all built on sevens. Yes. <laughs> And this podcast has been about as understandable as the book of of Revel. Anyway, um, so we have talked about a lot of different habits, Dad. Uh, We've talked about the role of Christian community in evangelism and mission, about hospitality, about taking the initiative, serving people, lots of stuff about listening, question asking, conversations, how to share your testimony, how to, to give an outline of the gospel story. But today, as we conclude, I think we get to the most uncomfortable part of evangelism. And it's this, that sometimes we will be talking about Jesus with someone, and it's not just that the person is disinterested in what we have to say. They actually disagree with what we say, perhaps strongly disagree, might even be offended by what we say. And I think that if you're faithful to share Christ with people, there is a very high likelihood that this will happen at some point. Absolutely. And it will happen regardless of how kind or winsome or deferential you are simply by believing a message that in one way or another contradicts the culture of every single culture in human history. It's going to create friction. Right. And so the question we're trying to answer today is what do you do when you're in those moments? How do you lean into disagreement? Yeah. And that's what Chan is trying to help us think through in this chapter. What did you think, Dad?
1: I thought I thought a very helpful chapter. And, and if you think about it, if people are not disagreeing with us, then we must not be making the message clear, because the, the message of the gospel, as you said, does cut across every cultural norm. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, we should see disagreement, if it's disagreement on substance rather than presentation, uh, as a positive thing, as a win and and i that's why i like his whole idea of leaning into disagreement seeing this as a good thing embracing disagreement as a, uh, as an important part of sharing the gospel rather than dreading it
0: yeah i think that framing is helpful because if you present the gospel to someone and they view it as totally palatable and in alignment with everything they already think then you have not given them the real gospel right we are, exactly. As Paul says in First Thessalonians, you are turning from idols to God, to the living God. And, and every conversion is an act of repentance where we are, we are releasing and um, rejecting the things we formerly held dear. Right. And now embracing um, God and his Lord Jesus. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that's a much more positive framing of it that's helpful. That, oh, yeah, this is going to happen. There is going to be something offensive that cuts across because... This is a message that they don't already believe. Yeah.
1: And I think it's helpful to, to differentiate between offense and disagreement. Um, if, yeah. if there is no disagreement, there can be no repentance because there's nothing to repent from. Right. So there has to be some point where we are, are disagreeing and we have to be able to persuade them uh, to to change what they've previously believed, mm-hmm. and which is what the Bible calls repentance.
0: Right. Yeah, and, and so I think that helps to to understand the inevitability of this. Uh, I think it gets challenging when the disagreement becomes vocal, when the disagreement is, well, I disagree with you and you're wrong and I don't like what you think, and maybe even what you think isn't just false, it's bad. Yeah, yeah. And And I think that is the... Particular pressure in our post-Christian context that Christians are facing right now. It's yeah. not just that people go, well, I don't, I don't choose to believe that particular thing in the smorgasbord of beliefs. It's that no, there's actually something corrosive or toxic about what you believe, and, and if people were to embrace this, it would be harmful for society.
1: Yeah, uh, that makes it a challenge, but on the other hand, it it really. It really helps us to demonstrate Christ, mm-hmm. because uh, first of all, how many people can disagree gracefully? In our culture, not many. It's uh, you know, it, it is uh, cancel, leave, um, forget it if we can't agree. And to be a per- known as a person who can kindly and objectively listen, and then honestly present what they think in a non-emotional. Kind patient way, it 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 marks that something is very different with you than with other people. Yeah, and, uh, I remember uh, spending a summer with uh, um, oh, what's his name, Martin uh, Walter Martin Walter Martin, mm-hmm. and he had he had uh, debated Madeline Murray O'Hare many mm-hmm. many times. You know, who is a famous atheist. Yeah. And, and after their final debate, she said, you know, you are the only Christian I have ever met that I ever, ever felt love me. Mm. And, and that, that was profound, you know. And so the, the point is there's more going on here than just making your point. Right. Um, and, and I think that's the thing to remember is that, is that loving people, and Jesus modeled that. Jesus uh, modeled uh, that you could disagree with people and still love them and, and, uh, rather than avoiding them. Or canceling them or anything like that. I mean, he goes to he goes to Matthew's house for dinner, and obviously right. he didn't agree with Matthew's lifestyle. He he calls out Zacchaeus and says, "I'm going to come to your house." And everybody's amazed. How could he have lunch with this hated tax collector? He he taught his disciples uh, to love their enemies uh, and bless them who disagree with them and who attack them and stuff like that. So to see that disagreement is a great opportunity for us to model who Jesus really is and how different Jesus is than what people think he is.
0: Yeah, and um, it is increasingly rare, as you said, to meet anyone in our culture who can disagree and, and still show love Yeah, and, and actually seek to persuade you Yeah, um, because they care about you. Uh, rather than ghost you or, or shut them out of your life. I think, too, there is a, um, a a dread about disagreement now because so much of it has shifted to online disagreement rather than disagreeing in front of a person in a conversation. Right, right. That if we can show that we are a non-anxious presence in those times yeah, where we don't feel threatened by their disagreement or we don't take it personally, yeah. Um, we, we just say, yeah, I think we see this very differently. Yeah. Um, that is really rare. Oh, yeah,
1: it really is. And people like talking to people like that. Yeah. Because they like people who want to know what they actually think. Right. And will listen to them and draw them out and ask them questions and and stuff like that. And then sh- be honest and share, well, here's, here's the way I look at this. Mm-hmm. And, and, and people will come away from those discussions, even though they may— disagree with us, they will appreciate that. Most people appreciate those conversations mm-hmm. because it makes them think more deeply and it's, it engages them far more than simply being on an echo chamber where they hear the same things they hear from their friends. Exactly.
0: It's good. So that was all very positive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but the conversation itself isn't going to feel that positive often. It's, it's going to feel tense, uncomfortable, and so, Chan lists a few tactics here, in terms of how to lean in, how to disagree well, how to navigate these conversations. What what stood out to you about some of his tips here?
1: I think uh, the one that I really liked was is to to let people know that this is not personal. Mm-hmm. That our view is Jesus's view. Yeah. And so we are simply Christ. From a biblical point of view, we're Christ's bond servants. Right delivering his mail Mm -hmm. this is not personal to us we're simply saying this is what jesus says and so what that practically means is that when people come up with questions well how can a loving god send people to hell Mm -hmm. or or how what's wrong with same-sex marriage Mm or are are all those questions and disagreements that we disagree that we we dread let jesus do the talking yeah and say well let me read you what jesus says in the bible yeah, and, and what do you think about that? And so it, it shifts from this is a contest between you and me and who's going to win the contest to it's just really about what Jesus says and, and you can either believe what Jesus says or not. But that's really the issue here. Yeah. It, it's what Christ says.
0: I, I think that idea of letting Jesus do the heavy lifting in the conversation is, is very helpful in, in reframing what the conversation is going to look like if we really are disagreeing on a a substantive issue like that. So, for instance, if, you know, and and probably the dominant one in our post-Christian culture is just sex and identity, things of that nature, and and often it's the the Christian sexual ethic is what people are um, vehemently disagreeing with, Um, it is so helpful, first, to not be defensive, to say, well, what do you think, Um, and and to ask, okay, well, what is your sex ethic? Because everyone has a sex ethic. Everybody thinks there's good kinds of sex and bad kinds of sex. And it seems in our post-Christian context that it's a, it's a pretty thin ethic in a lot of ways. It's something like consent plus being of age in some way for the, yeah. the vast majority of people. And yeah. you might throw a few other contingencies and there are qualifiers. But to say, oh, yeah, you know, I think everyone has a view of what makes sex good or what leads to, to flourishing. Um, let me tell you where I get my sexual ethic um, as a follower of Jesus. It starts with Jesus. And, hey, can we read Mark 10 together yeah. and what Jesus says about marriage? Yeah, yeah. And and right there, you have so much foundation lay with the person. Oh, Jesus is saying that, that God created maleness and femaleness, and he created male and female for each other. There's the idea of a covenant there and not separating it. And so you have the one man, the one woman, the lifelong, the exclusive. It's all right there. And now it's really a Bible study. Yeah. Exactly. It's, well, what do you think about this? How do you think this would have landed um, on the ears of Jesus' hearers? How does it land today? And, 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 and the, again, you're, you're not expecting to bring the person all the way to your position necessarily in the conversation, but to show that, that the historic global orthodox position on sexual practice uh, isn't something that we just made up out of thin air. It's deeply rooted in the biblical text, and in the words of Jesus himself. Yeah, yeah,
1: and and that disagreement is simply gives you an opportunity to share the Bible, right? I mean, which is a, which is a great thing because yeah. this is obviously an issue that they're interested in. So let's see what Jesus had to say about this because I'll, I think when those questions are asked, they're not against the backdrop of what does Christ say, but they're a backdrop of of this narrative of the oppressive church, which has you know put people down and tried to 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 um, condemn them and judge them and take all the joy out of life and control people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that's when, when people think Christian, that's what they're thinking of. Right. Uh, and, but we're going all the way back long before that and just said, but let's look at the actual issue yeah. and what Christ had to say about it.
0: Yeah, and, and um, I think a good thing to do there is, is make Jesus, show just how extreme Jesus is And that he's actually more extreme than you feared. Yeah. And and so uh, Andrew Wilson calls it making the problem bigger than they think it is, Uh, rather than smaller, because then it really helps them to reframe the thing and to say, wow, you know, not only is Jesus upholding this sexual ethic, but he has a view of commitment and divorce and sexual fidelity that would have been offensive in that culture. Yeah, And in fact, has been offensive... In every culture. Exactly. In, in fact, Jesus' view of sexual faithfulness cuts against the sexual mores of um, the entire Greco-Roman world. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, you know, every... And the Jewish world. And, and the Jewish world, insofar as their view on divorce was concerned. Yeah, yeah. And, and And sort of the expendability <laughs> of women. Yeah. And, and, and so um, to say that actually Jesus' teaching... Undercuts everyone's intuitions yeah. about how sex should have worked. Yeah. And um and and that sort of levels the playing field in a sense. Um yeah. that that Jesus really is radical. And one point I'd like to make about this that's just really important about going back to Jesus is that people have wild misperceptions about Jesus in our culture. Yeah. You know, they they think they like Jesus because of the popular conception of Jesus, but they've never actually read anything Jesus has ever said. Right, right. And I remember years ago talking to a friend of mine who who was kind of you know, into Eastern philosophy, religion, and of course upheld Jesus as this great enlightened teacher. And I said, I don't think you could take that view of Jesus if you really read him. And he said, why not? And I said, I don't think you'd find Jesus that likable. Yeah. And I started just sharing different things Jesus thought and believed and actually trying to problematize Jesus for them right? and show, wow, he really is radical in yeah. his claims on people, and yet he's also loving. And so now they have to grapple with Jesus yeah. and yeah. not just their worst encounters with Christians or exactly. something like that. Exactly. And I think it, it, changes, it changes our purpose, that our
1: goal is not to make Jesus palatable. Our goal is to make Jesus clear. Yeah. And and that and so that disagreement it presents a great opportunity to do this. This mm-hmm. is not a this is not a bad thing right. because there's a little tension in the air. No. This is actually a good thing because we're able to they actually they there wouldn't be tension if they didn't care. Right. And so the fact that they care it, it, it it's a very teachable moment for them to learn some things about Jesus that they wouldn't have known
0: otherwise. Yeah. I, I heard someone say recently that one of the greatest dangers in the West right now is, and I'm going to steal their term. I know someone came up with it, but uh, <laughs> apatheism versus atheism. Hmm. Uh, and, and it's the idea of, of just kind of total indifference to qu- the deep questions of life. Yeah. And, yeah, and that is, I think, much harder to overcome than um, a person who strongly disagrees because then, well, they have values. Yeah they have a sense of purpose and, and and that kind of person is actually going to be much more open to discussing the big things than someone who is just indifferent.
1: Yeah. and Of course, Saul becoming Paul is a great example of that. Yeah. I mean, Saul was a very zealous enemy of Christ and he became a very zealous follower of Christ. He was a man of passion. He cared. Right.
0: Yeah. So I, I think the idea that our view is Jesus view, um, as Chan says, is a great place to start. Yeah. Um, and, and then the the practical implication is just, you know, start thinking through stories, you know, Jesus telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus, you know, and for hell, and Jesus with healing the servant's ear and telling Peter to put away his sword in John 18 when people ask about the church and religious violence, things like that, but, but always taking it back to Jesus really helps to defang those conversations and center them in the right place. Yeah, yeah. So that that's sort of us on the defensive in these conversations, right? right? That, right. that when we're trying to, to defend what we believe. But I think sometimes Christians have a presumption in these conversations that's unhelpful. And it's that I have to defend my view only and um, make sure that it's bulletproof. And, but the other person has a view. Yeah. Yeah. And that needs to be explored. Exactly. Because ultimately, the, the question here isn't which worldview is bulletproof or is perfect in some sense. The real question is which alternative makes the most sense. Yeah. yeah. Out of reason, rationality, or moral intuitions, all of these different things. And so I think it's helpful to turn the conversation around and, as Chan says, gently challenge. Um, what were your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I thought that was, that was absolutely... That's really key. It's really playing offense rather than defense, right? And and uh, it's taking. They can't be allowed to just kind of sit in the jury and be deciding. uh, The dispassionate observer here of that they, you know, they are betting their life on their view, right? You know, so you're you're betting your eternal. I'm I'm betting my eternal life. That Christ is who he says he is, what are you betting your eternal life on right you know and and uh why do what do you believe? Why do you believe it yeah and and, and they go into that so yeah, and so I think asking questions a lot of questions, well, why do you think that? What do you base that on? yeah this is really helpful
0: I, and I think what we're doing here is getting people to realize that they have faith commitments that they have made, yes. And and that their life is not just based on evidence, <laughs> and and sort of making these logical deductions and inferences about how they're going to live. In fact, they base their life on presuppositions yeah. about how the universe works, and um, they have a lot of faith in those. And so we have to ask, well, where does that come from?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's recognizing the moment when to ask those questions and people will make value statements um this is right this is wrong mm-hmm. you know, people make those statements all the time right and that's when you begin to ask questions well it seems like you say you value this more than this or you think this is right this is wrong what do you base that upon yeah and and it's just the whys, why, 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 why. And, and and finally, the why will drive you up the wall because you will suddenly realize you have nothing to base that on other than just that's the way you want things to be.
0: Yeah, it's a useful social construct for society to work are a lot of these things exactly. or to give my life meaning and purpose, um, which I'm glad you believe some of those things. I just think I have a radically different foundation Yeah, on which to base those. Yeah. Than you do. I, I think with disagreement, it, it's often gonna be in the realm of, of ethics, right? Or what we ought to do or what we ought to be. Right. Especially in our culture. You know, yeah. I I don't get lots of questions anymore about the historicity of the resurrection or arguments for God's existence or things like that. It's it's really ethical dilemmas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. About identity, freedom, sense making, justice. Those are the big questions people seem to be asking now rather than kind of the classical apologetic questions of how can I prove Christ's resurrection from history right. or the Bible's reliability or right. things like that. Right. And, and so I think a great place to start is, is realizing that so much of our mental architecture in the West is um, uh, was given to us by Christianity. And, and then to explore that with other people. And so, for instance, like universal human rights, that's a thing that like everybody in our culture seemingly is going to subscribe to, yeah, but in the history of humanity, that's a relatively new idea that that every human has equal dignity and, and has some we have some equal obligation to each human to treat them the same, right yeah. yeah, and so whenever people talk about equality, equity, equality of opportunity, equality of outcome, all of these things, there is a very Christian presupposition at the heart of it, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. And and
0: even today there are plenty of cultures in the world that don't share that assumption of universal human rights. And would, in fact say it's cultural imperialism for you to foist this idea of universal human rights on our culture. Yeah. yeah. And, and yet we have this intuition that no, of course humans are equal yeah. in some sense. Well, yeah. where does that come from?
1: Yeah. I think that's a
0: great thing to interrogate with people.
1: Yeah. I think a good strategy on on, on doing that is, is you wanna
0: you wanna build
1: agreements. So you start with what you agree with. Yeah. You know, and you say, you know, okay, so you believe in universal human rights. Let's take right. that one. I agree. Yeah. And gives it, here's some ways I agree with that and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But I, the one question I have is, is what's your foundation? Let's say let's take you're talking to somebody from Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. um, who don't believe in rights for women. Right. Certainly don't re- believe in rights for non-Muslims. Yeah. Um, how would you, how would you persuade them how would you persuade them how would you argue with them right um, from from your point of view and it's it's kind of the Columbo principle mm-hmm. remember that <laughs> the old detective Columbo was great because he would make people feel totally safe and uh, that we're all we all agree we're all friends and stuff like that he said oh one thing that bothers me is and he would zing him with a question mm-hmm. then that that kind of stripped uh, strip the, uh, the suspect down mm-hmm. and they reveal something. I think that's kind of a good technique is that, that we start with what we agree on but then we go, but what do you, why do you believe that? Right.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's great. Um, yeah, Chan lists human rights and dignity, human equality as great things to explore. I think human freedom and agency mm-hmm. and, and just that we have this dignity of agency and the importance of choice. Um, of course from a perspective of the hard sciences, um, it's very hard to determine what human freedom would be <laughs> or, or what it is. And I've heard plenty of atheists say that the idea of human freedom is just a useful fictional story we've told ourselves to give our life meaning and purpose. But, you know, there's no freedom. There's no intention. There is no purpose. Um, we are just happening. <laughs> it's just determinant. Yeah, it's already, it's already been determined. A- and so... I think that idea of freedom is another great one to interrogate with yeah. people, to say, this seems like a prized thing and an intuition we really need, even for our own system of justice to work. Where does that come from? Yeah, How does that work? I think freedom is also so prized in our culture. It's good to interrogate the limits of freedom with people. Um, I tried to do that in our sermon this week, mm-hmm. <laughs> where, you know, stealing from Mark Sayers, I talked about how freedom and meaning have kind of an inverse relationship between each other, where if the goal of life is just to be as free as I possibly can be and do whatever I want, um, it ultimately drains life of meaning. Yeah, Because meaning is transcendent. Yeah. It, it lays a claim on you. There's a story to live for that's bigger than me. There's a duty that's bigger than me that's a, that, that overrides what I want in any given moment. And so I think talking at that level about some of these questions helps people to see um, maybe some holes in their worldview or how they've thought about what the good life could look like. Exactly. And and then it gives us a window to to do some sense-making with them and, and help make sense of their moral intuitions and their intuitions about life. And I think in this particular moment, that's a lot more of the kind of apologetics we're going to be doing than answering questions of history and philosophy yeah. because frankly the people i meet just don't care yeah that much about those
1: yeah yeah i agree i agree yeah,
0: yeah it's just uh, you can believe
1: in freedom but f- just the concept of freedom doesn't tell you how to use that freedom and yeah.
0: uh, or what you're here for yeah
1: well, what you're here for is going to determine how you make how you use your freedom
0: it, exactly uh, if, yeah. do you have a purpose or not yeah and, exactly. and it, it will come back to that question and what's so interesting about the ideas of freedom and intentionality is we borrow that language all the time in our contemporary discourse. Uh, the fact that there is a political identity called progressive—well, progressing towards what? Yeah. A better future. What is the better future? That there has to be some heaven in mind here that you have that you think humanity should, you know, progress or evolve yeah. toward. Yeah. Of course. From a scientific perspective, it's it's nonsense to say that you would be evolving toward anything other than um, what you're determined to evolve toward. But what is this purpose? What is this ideal future you're fighting for? Yeah. So, so the ideas of history progressing, universal equality, universal dignity, this is um, something that the Christian worldview has bequeathed yeah. <laughs> to the West. Yeah. And I think just interrogating those things makes for some very interesting conversations yeah. with people where we don't always feel like we have to defend everything that we are believing in any given moment. right.
1: Right. No you've kind of got to deconstruct the foundation they are standing on exactly before they see the need for another foundation. right. And I think a lot of people they, they some people think deeply, some people don't think that deeply, but all, everybody believes things like doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And, <laughs> and, and there's you know and there's lots of easy ways. To uh, to ask questions about something like that, you know, mm-hmm. you're at the hospital and and the doctor prescribes a particular uh, uh, drug for you, and the nurse puts the wrong drug in. Mm-hmm. Um, she could be very sincere and sincerely believe that's what she read, but your your body is still going to not do real well with that, you know. And it's, it's, it's sincerity ha- has its limits, you know. It's good to be yeah. sincere,
0: but you could be sincerely wrong. Yeah, I don't think people apply that belief to what vaccine uh, they've gotten over COVID or something like that. Yeah, I yeah. think they really want it to work. Yeah, yeah, no, just just the objectivity of truth and things like that yeah. come through in that. No, it's good. I think, I think too, realizing that after you have that disagreeable conversation and you don't see eye to eye, um, telling the person, hey, I really enjoyed this yeah, and would love to talk about this in the future because what it does, what it communicates is that my friendship is not, contingent on us meeting on this issue. Yeah. And boy, is that rare. Yeah, yeah. Um, at this moment. Oh, yeah. To have a friend like that. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, it's really win the friendship rather than the argument. hmm That's the goal. Right. As he says, and uh, it is rare. And uh, the question is, what do we agree on and how can we get there? We may be taking different paths there, but we can continue to challenge each other's paths.
0: Right. One other pro tip... Learn from painful experience. (laughs) If someone asks an excellent question and you don't know the answer, the best thing to say is that is an excellent question, and I am not totally sure how I would answer that. Could I think about it a little bit more? Yeah. That is the right answer. Yeah. The right answer is not coming up with some half-baked thing, uh, taking a few verses out of context (laughs) and pulling out a few facts that aren't really facts. Um, because that will damage your credibility, and and it will show you're not really open to a conversation. Yeah. Uh, you're you're just trying to get your point across. So yeah. so it's much better to just have the humility to say and let that spur you to go study more, learn more, um, have a more deeply informed and formed faith. Yeah, that's
1: good. No, actually, saying I don't know increases your credibility.
0: Mm-hmm. Because,
1: yeah. Because it shows that you're not faking it here. Yeah. But, however, if you say, I don't know, to the same question several times, uh, and you haven't gone and found the answer, that you're going to lose your
0: credibility then. Right. No, it's good. Well, good. I, I think this is helpful. Um, it's helpful to me. Some good reminders. Anything else you have? I think that's it. Well, listeners, thank you for all of you that have trekked with us through this series on the Habits of a Missionary. The prayer here is that you'd go out and live this way. And hopefully this has given you some more tools in the toolkit to go live as an ambassador of Christ, not just as some special thing you do in your free time, but in every part of life. So thanks, Dad. Thank you, Jeff. We'll be back at some point. I don't know what our next series is, but it'll probably be related to habits. So listeners, thanks so much, and we'll talk to you again soon.